Welcome to the Case for Safety podcast. Our conversations with safety experts aim to share ideas and insights you can use to help your organization benefit from efforts to improve worker safety and health. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. Applying prevention through design concepts allows you to design out hazards and risks from machinery, processes, and procedures to help prevent injuries, illnesses, and fatalities in the workplace. Joining us today to talk about prevention through design, its history, its future, and how you can implement prevention through design concepts at your organization is Michael Tobitz. Michael is a senior advisor at FDR Safety LLC, where he assists clients in developing efficient and effective safety programs. Uh, Michael, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. Pleasure to be here and talk about one of my favorite topics. One of, one of mine as well. This is a topic I've been very interested in for a really long time and uh, something you have a lot of experience in and have written extensively about. I uh, encourage uh, all of our listeners to uh, take a look at your uh, articles in Professional Safety Journal. So uh, as we as we get things started, to, to kick things off, I, I touched on it a little bit there at the top. I thought we could kind of start by giving an overview of prevention through design and talk a little bit about its history for those who may not be as familiar with it. Sure. Well, in my case, um, and thank you for the experience, the listeners will quickly discern that I am old and battle-scarred because I graduated as a mechanical engineer in 1970, and I started in process engineering in General Motors, what would be known today as manufacturing engineering, but my job was to lay out the production processes to produce Chevrolet V8 engines and go out and get bids from vendors and to help select the vendors, get the machines built, commissioned, installed on the floor and turn it over to production, start the cycle again. Well, for those who know, what happened in 1970 is that the OSH Act came into being. And uniquely, as I was to find out later in my career, going through Chevrolet and General Motors, is that for whatever reason, my plant tackled OSHA compliance for machine guarding, lockout, noise control, and other things very differently. And our head engineer, a term used back then was master mechanic, decreed that all the process engineers would be individually responsible for compliance with OSHA. I remember looking up in horror, as we all did, and said, we don't know anything about the act. And he said, neither does safety. You better learn because you guys control all the money and you deal with the vendors. So the adage that necessity is the mother of invention quickly becomes true. In my case, I also happen to be the noise control engineer for the entire plant. This is a large plant, different world of manufacturing. We had 6,000 employees producing 6,000 engines under 2.5 million square feet. So a lot of noise sources, a lot of guarding, a lot of things. What I found early, and this is a point I want to make to anyone listening, so with all the concepts, and we'll talk about myths and how ANSI standards can help, but if you do not get into the early stages of concept and design, you have missed the boat. When I go on site with clients, I often ask to see, these are many times large clients buying very large complex machines, and I ask to see their bid specs. 
Now, these aren't the specs that the machine builder sent in with a quote. This is what the employer, the organization that will make use of the equipment, sends out and says, look, I want a breakdown possibly of three different options for noise control. Tell me what you're going to do. Describe how you will come up with a span of control for the control of hazardous energy. What kind of guarding? And the reason for this, and again, it's one nice thing about being old, I lived ancient history. Instead of doing sound level measurements and guarding and everything at the time of machine runoff, the engineers are now doing these things as part of the machine drawings coming in for approval. Because whoever is building the machine quoted that they would do certain things. Now, I'll touch on role and responsibility a little bit. That never would have happened had our senior executive in engineering not stood up and said, this is what we're going to do. Because it's not surprising that a lot of vendors bought and they said, well, noise controls built into the base cost of the machine, blah, blah, blah. I just simply said, look, you don't do that. You won't be considered. So it's your choice. And a few of them tried to go talk to the master mechanic and they didn't get very far. So that is the first most fundamental point that I want to make to this is that safety pros need to proactively get out with their engineering departments. It's going to be a battle because most people are think, well, that's your job and you have to do it. But the engineers have to take this on as part and parcel of having machines designed for production, maintenance, and obviously safety in all of those different modes of operation. Not easy. They're not going to listen to recordable injury rates and DART and what they consider our mumbo jumbo. So we have to learn to talk their language. And the good news is the ANSI standards are great guideposts for that. And Scott, we'll probably get to that in a little bit. Yeah, uh, yes, we will indeed. Thank you for that. Yeah, that that really lays a great uh, great foundation. Something you touched on there, and I uh, something I thought was really interesting in your recent uh, article in Professional Safety Journal were those those current state myths. There's quite a few you, you list in in the Professional Safety article, but I wonder if we could kind of touch on some of those the the current state myths when it comes to prevention through design and kind of how we can help dispel some of those myths as you as you do in the article. Well, in 1977, I transitioned out of engineering into safety at the plant. And my older skilled trades brother, who was a lot more talented and skilled than I was, sat me down and said, you know, Mike, if I listen to all that BS you guys tell me, he said, I'm going to shut you down within the hour and you will never run again. The analogy that my brother used that had to do with really kind of guarding in the control of hazardous energy, and we'll touch on this later because I want to make those two of the focal points. He said, you know, if a car was a piece of industrial automation, you guys would interlock the hood and not let the engine run with a hood open. He was right then, and sadly, he's right today. As I commented to one of the clients where I was on recently teaching task-based risk assessment, feasible risk reduction using hazard control hierarchy, I said, I think we've actually gone backwards because now we'd interlock it and bolt the hood down. Part of this is the belief. So now we have to step back in history again. It is what hopefully readers of the May 2021 article on PTD 
in this year and beyond is that this belief that guards prevent access. And I always, I, I have to tell you, Scott, I, I've learned a lot from Jim Stanley, who's president of FDR, because I faulted OSHA for a lot of this stuff. And as I've really read OSHA and the regulation and the preambles and other things, I've come to understand that it is industry ourselves, the profession and the engineers who have carried forward these myths. So let's step back. First standards go back literally 100 years into the 20s. It carried through into the 60s where horrific injuries were being realized in people who manually fed a mechanical power press. And when OSHA came out with its regulation in 1970, they had that guards for manually loading a mechanical power press must prevent access. We all get it. We're all going to do that. It's the only right thing to do because people take a shortcut and they lost body parts. And they refer to table 010. I can tell you in my expert work that 90% of everybody, plaintiffs, uh, defendants, engineers, ex still refer to table 010. I repeat, that only applies where you're manually loading a mechanical power press. Now, why is that important? When I am working collaboratively, and I always go with the maintenance departments because I know from my experience, which, by the way, I've had the sad misfortune to having conducted more than 80 on-site fatality investigations. As I moved through my career, became head of General Motors in the mid-80s, 600,000 workers, but far too many people died. And a lot of it was the guarding and a belief of both my management, UAW, and OSHA that We'll do zero energy. We'll just kill all the power. Well, when you do those things, the workers know they can't do their tasks. So they wait until you turn your head and then they have the power on. But what we have done is nothing. We have not assessed the hazard and risk. We haven't given them feasible controls. And the bizarre things that I've seen, and let me step back for a moment to, to guarding. I had a client two years ago, it was a very large washer coming out of an operation. And there's a massive piece of sheet metal, eh, several sheets, but probably 15 feet long and eight feet high. And it was attached with tiny little cap screws. So I asked the question, well, who goes inside there to do any tasks, any work where they'll be exposed? And they said, well, only maintenance. I said, well, is it locked out? Oh, yeah, that's the only way they go in. I said, well, why would you make it so difficult for this guard to be attached? And not surprisingly, a whole bunch of cat screws missing. They looked and said, well, guards have to prevent access. See, that's the kind of myth that precludes good design. So if you believe that guards prevent access, and if you believe that you got to have zero energy, it's just going to shut everything down. And my brother was right, and it'll never run again. So let me step forward, and then I'll take a little break and toss back to you. But I want to introduce the concept of risk. Now, this is not a criticism, but it's an observation that safety, as it evolved out of the 60s, this is before OSHA was a hazards-based profession. 
there's a hazard. What are you going to do? Guard it or lock it? That's what it was in the 70s. There was no concept of assessing exposure, let alone risk. Risk assessment was a very nebulous kind of concept that was kind of coming into product design for automobiles and, and the military, and not even yet in the European Union. So with that, we carried forward these beliefs, and they're, believe me, they're powerful. They're still there today. And you end up losing the opportunity, and I repeat, in concept and design, so that you could now have something that makes sense. And I'm going to finish this off with this comment that I always ask to clients where I'm on site. And that is the question. Do you think it's okay to design a machine knowing that a worker will have to work within inches of live 480 volts? Well, guess what? The only people who smile are the electricians and the maintenance people. Because if we believe that, then this world, the building you're in, every place we are, will shut down today and never run again. Because qualified, skilled electricians cannot, you cannot eliminate the hazard, you can't substitute, and you can't guard it. We are left with a lower order of controls, as we would call in the hazard control hierarchy, where awareness, arc flash procedures, PPE, and with people with the skills and knowledge perform that extraordinarily high-risk task. And I repeat, it's not okay. Everything shuts down and never runs again. So we have to come to grips with risk. Now, I'll put that in perspective. I guarantee you, don't like electricity, ever did. If it were me, I'd probably be dead. But for the properly qualified worker who's had experience and follows the procedures and arc flash, it achieves acceptable risk. And if the safety profession, and it's our job to lead the way to dispel these myths, cannot begin to grapple with the real world, then let's forget about talking about prevention through design. Because the myths constrain advancement. I'm glad you, you touched on, on OSHA. And I wonder if you could kind of dive a little deeper into that, kind of looking at the current state and talk about, you know, the regulations that are applicable to prevention through design, whether it's OSHA standards and the, the B11 standards and how those apply to, to reducing risk. Sure. Let me step back and, and give a real foundation, because trust me, there's still a huge amount of confusion on the issue of the relationship of the OSH Act, machine design, and OSHA, and everything else. The OSH Act, and, and as much as I battle with the agency when I'm hired to defend citations, and I, and I have to tell you, somebody gets hurt, 99% of all the citations cite both machine guarding and control of hazardous energy. Well, the first thing is, it's one or the other. If a machine is in production, and OSHA's own documents talk about this, all the adjuncts that they have on their, their guidance and others that build upon the regulation, is that guard prevents against inadvertent access. Now, the dilemma is, in today's modern world with automatic machines, we've got an operator, we've got everything properly guarded, and we're spitting out good parts, good quality, no problem. But something happens. I need to do a quality check. I have a minor jam. That worker 
might not even be a maintenance worker, depending on what the task is. That worker now has to enter into what we would call a hazard area, what the OSH Review Commission would call a zone of danger. Well, that's an intentional access. And what we know immediately by definition of the task, going back to OSHA, is that that worker must now be protected by a procedure, be it isolation of the primary energy source and full lockout, or if it qualifies for minor servicing and I can use control circuitry or something I'll talk about more during this podcast, development of alternative methods, which are in turn in lieu of full lockout tagout. Now, I'd like listeners to pay close attention. Do not be careless with terms. If someone uses the term alternative measure, it very specifically is taken from the minor servicing exception to 29 CFR 1910-147 control hazardous energy. That's fine. When you talk alternative method, you're talking about something where it's not minor servicing. You're not going to win that argument. But you can't fully lock out because you need power for the task. Well, that's where the ANSI standards come in, both ANSI Z244.1, where ASSP is secretariat, and ANSI B11, and particularly ANSI B110, um, and both mirror of dealing with identical definitions for alternative methods. They give you definitions for achieving acceptable risk, acceptable because there's no such thing as zero. And with that, then, you can now go through and use the ANSI standards and the methodology. And what I tell clients is, and now you will declare compliance. You may have disagreement. You may have disagreement from corporate auditors and OSHA and everything else. But if you follow, and I will now speak to ANSI B110, and it's my favorite. I call it the Bible for prevention through design. Because it came out in 2010, and it codified decades of industry practice, and it starts with concept and design. Wonderful. Defines the roles of suppliers and everything else, and takes you through risk assessment, all the things we're discussing. So I'm re-emphasizing that absolute need to get in early in concept and design. Now, when you go through and do these things, I've had people go, oh, well, I've got an alternative method. I hit an e-stop and I put the machine in manual. Nope, not true. You're not compliant. You're not necessarily safe. In fact, I just about guarantee you're not safe. But if you follow the methodologies of doing risk assessment, and within the ANSI B11 series, as well as Z244, it talks about task-based risk assessment. And that methodology came out of General Motors and United Auto Workers in the late 90s. It was recognized in by OSHA. There's an online letter to address to a Mr. Tom Weekly in 1999. And OSHA recognized the methodology of the acronym TABRA. T, small a, capital B, capital R, capital A. Again, what changed from instead of going, there's a hazard. This was now... What is the task? And I repeat that you have to know the task to get into compliance with OSHA. You have to know if you're running production and guarding against inadvertence, 
or developing a procedure to protect when somebody intentionally goes in. Now, almost every case I see where someone went in for whatever reason was injured will come back to guards have to prevent access. And we just keep repeating these myths and these fallacies and not moving forward. One other thing occurs to me that I should mention, those who may be affiliated with the supplier industry. So there is a belief, and properly so, the OSH Act only applies to employers. So everybody's familiar with general duty clause 5A1, and employers have to provide a workplace free of recognized hazards. And that, that's a key concept also. What everybody forgets is that 5B says the employee, by law, has to follow the rules and policies and procedures given by their employer. When the OSH Act came out in 70, it established the agency we know as OSHA and empowered OSHA to go forward and develop all these regulations. OSHA regulation does not apply to the suppliers of machinery and equipment, only in that supplier being an employer. So if there's a lawsuit, the suppliers have taken on a very conservative approach and very incorrectly, citing standards and regulation incorrectly, and I get it, because they're worried about product liability. And what they're all forgetting, again, is the OSH Act. Once that machine is taken into an employer's facility, if you bought it without a disconnect, it's up to you as the employer to go retrofit it and get a disconnect. So I want to put in perspective that from a, I'm not a lawyer, but I deal with a lot of folks who are lawyers and others, the ANSI standards exist. They're voluntary. They're not law. They don't have the power of OSHA and, and OSHA regulation. But they help an employer come into compliance with OSHA. And so we need to keep those things in proper context. We need to get rid of the myths. And only then can we begin to avail ourselves of the use of the risk assessment methodologies, use of the hazard control hierarchy, developing me means and methods that achieve the acceptable risk and really open the door for the exciting opportunity of what I see in prevention through design because of all the, the stuff coming through from the system safeguarding folks. So now let me take a breath and a break. Please, please do. Um and that's that's a, a perfect transition for what you were just uh, talking about there into into my my next question, you know, talking about well what's coming down the road, new opportunities, you know, as we as we move forward. Uh, and this is you know a big focus of your your recent article in uh, Professional Safety Journal. So now we've kind of talked through the current state. I thought we could move into you know where. Uh, prevention through design is going in the future. You know how advances in technology uh, in automation are are supporting that, and you know how we can improve prevention through design even further into the future. Sure. Um, one of the things I would encourage listeners to do if they haven't done it is go back to the May twenty twenty one article in the Professional Safety Journal. And in Table three, and a good friend and colleague from 
sick. They've been a leader in developing system safeguarding, as with many. Whether it's pills and banner engineering and Omron, we've, we've got some really outstanding global companies developing system safeguarding. Unfortunately, they too have many of these myths kind of in their heart and soul. But what you see in that table three, and I, and I thought it was brilliant because I'd seen this from my, my friend Chris Serrano, who sits on a lot of standards in B11, and it was showing a worker going into what would be a traditional hazard area, again, using the language of the OSH Review Commission, a zone of danger. Well, I'd call it in prevention through design or, and by the way, and I, I skipped this, but in General Motors, when we started the concept in the late 70s, we called it design and safety. And that morphed its way into the National Safety Council Institute for Safety Through Design in the 90s, and that was sunset. NIOSH picked it up, and it's prevention through design. So I don't care what the label is. But what you see is the, the concept of passive controls. Now, let's think about this. When we get into a car, we have a whole bunch of safety devices that are built in, airbags and all sorts of things and speed detection, and, my, and those are passive. They are going to trigger we, as a human being, don't have to do anything. Now, to really achieve, achieve acceptable risk, we still have to buckle up. But a goal for a, a lot of people, and I was dealing with the United Auto Workers on these concepts in the late 80s, a lot of us had a belief that we should be able to, and the technology is there, move forward to have what a worker would consider a passive control. He or she could simply walk into an area and through the use of all these presence sensing devices, detect that a worker is there and allow that worker to do certain things and hold a machine in a safe position. And when the worker steps back out without having to hit run buttons or two hand controls or anything else, it just activates and it works. Now I will tell you, and it's okay, we gave up on it and time, but in the late 1970s, Chevrolet Motor Division undertook using the concept, we called it light screen cycle initiation to differentiate. If technical listeners are out there familiar with PSDI, present sensing device initiation, it's been around for decades, trying to be used on mechanical power presses. I never wanted to go near it because it's too hard for stopping time control. A, Mechanical power press, especially back 30 years ago, but hydraulic machines could stop nearly instantaneously. And we started putting these light screens on. And at that time, you, you had typically one person, one machine. And there were two hand controls and for added control, people put light screens on so that if you know somebody defeated the two hand control and they tried to reach in, the light screen would shut the operation down. Well, there are two different Chevrolet plants concurrently called and said, well, look, if it's safe, when the hand is reaching in at maximum speed, why can't we load to a part present device? And when the hand pulls away from the hazard, trip cycle. Wow, great idea. So we did it. We were challenged by federal and state of Michigan OSHA. We won every citation. And I can tell you that we had millions 
of what I'll call man-machine hours without injury. And that allowed the, the first concepts of getting into cell manufacturing. Workers loved it. They didn't have to hit two-end controls hundreds or thousands of times a day because these were short-cycle machines. We don't have that kind of equipment anymore. And pointing this out to just try and illustrate that the use of existing technology and particularly present sensing initiation offers just tremendous opportunity. And you're going to find a lot of engineers getting really kind of turned on to the concept if we don't stand in the way and go, no, you got to have a guard here. you got to, you got to lock everything out. We need to understand hazards, risks in the context of OSHA compliance and in conformance, different term, not compliance, conformance to the existing ANSI standards. So really, I, as, as you're talking, and there, those are some great examples. It's just would you say overall, it's just kind of, you know, having having a different mindset around, you know, risk assessment, risk management, hazard analysis? That is correct. And again, I don't fault the, the profession. We grew up in hazards-based technology. Now, one thing I will mention to you, and, and again, because of all the different jobs and assignments that I had, when I moved out of my Chevrolet plant late 70s and I moved down to the General Motors Tech Center, and, and again, this is a different era. It's when General Motors had 600,000 workers in the United States. Chevrolet division alone had 128,000 workers. And I was now, for 28 plants, supposed to be in charge of industrial hygiene. I didn't know anything about hygiene, so I got with the GM industrial hygiene staff and started to go out with them and lug around all the equipment. And one thing struck me and I went, wow, before they ever come through with an assessment, they have to calibrate equipment. They have to know what they're looking. And the bottom line is they were measuring exposures. And so I was taken back to the issues that I had in the plant of why when we saw something move, it was guarded or locked. It is because the profession did not have the means and methods of accessing exposure which I call risk assessment, because if you take a look at it, at its basics, what's the probability that something will happen? And then you marry that with, well, okay, if something happens, what's the probability of severity? And you come up with a risk level. So for me, it was trying to emulate the exposure assessments of industrial hygiene. It was also trying to be responsive because where I started skip. I actually went through the old Jenner Motors Institute, now Kettering. So I spent, it was a five-year program. In the first four years, my collaborative or cooperative work experience in a plant, I wore coveralls. I worked in skilled trades and production jobs. So I came through along with my skilled trade brother, a rather blue-collar mentality of people listening to all the safety stuff and rolling their eyes and then just ignoring it, to be honest with you, because they couldn't use it in their real world. And I will, on that point, mention this. In the cases where I go on site and I'm teaching these concepts we're talking about, task-based risk assessment, the assessment of feasibility, use of the hazard control hierarchy, alternative methods, I typically will ask for a mechanic whom they consider complains the most. 
And I can guarantee I'm 100% on this in probably 60 to 80 companies coming back within the hour and documenting on a risk assessment that if the worker follows the safety rules that typically he was given, it's the malicious compliance you learn from my brother in skilled trades. I'll follow the rules and I'll shut you down. And you'll never run again because the task required power. And it's we continue to hand out rules like they're eighth grade problems. And trust me, the machinery and equipment is college level complexity. Workers know it. So it's up to us, in my opinion, and especially in prevention through design, because the other point I want to reaffirm here, and I've mentioned several times now, if you don't get into concept and design and you you wait until the machine's coming in or it's run off, you're already into retrofit. And it's not only costing money, but probably holding up machine delivery. And you're not going to pass tests of feasibility. They're just going to blow right by you. So we have to work proactively, getting with engineers, trying to sell the concepts, working with them, introducing them to the standards that exist, helping dispel the beliefs, which, by the way, one other belief I find particularly in engineers, and you probably get a sense that I, I picture this like I'm on site with clients, and I usually have combination of engineers, safety, and mechanics and operators. And I'll ask the group, how many people here believe in perfection? Yeah, if I got honest, usually one or two hands go up, oftentimes out of an engineer. And I have to tell them, well, until God comes down, uh, we're never going to be perfect. Those same companies are preaching continuous improvement. And the bottom line is when people try for perfection, they go overboard. They go crazy. They go to the point of they, they think that zero injury goals means zero risk. So I have to debunk all of those myths that we talked about in that article of zero energy, zero risk, guards prevent access. Because those are the barriers to prevention through design and the opportunities, tremendous opportunities that we really have before us. Absolutely. I, a couple of things you mentioned there, I thought were really good. You, you talk using using these concepts in the real world, and you know, safety professionals getting with engineers, being proactive uh, about these things in the concept and design phase to work to prevent injuries, illnesses, and fatalities. So I thought we kind of wrap up our conversation talking about, you know, organizations are all doing different kinds of work. They have, you know, different numbers of employees, but along with those, those concepts of, you know, working with engineers, being proactive, what else can, you know, any size organization do to, to implement these, these different concepts at their organization? Absolutely. Many times I've found with the smaller and medium-sized clients, it's, it's better be, because the folks know each other. It's a lot of trust, strong working relationships, and you don't have to get lost in writing ISO-type standards and other things. You, you've just got to get these things implanted. And one of the things I'd, I'd like to kind of close with, and, and we don't, because we don't think of it, we're always thinking about guarding and lockout and the hazards of machine motion. I get it. But I've done, Scott, hundreds and hundreds of these task-based risk assessments. 
And I tell my wife, I think I'm sometimes like a flickering 40-watt bulb that hasn't quite come on, which we know that when it does come on, it's not very bright. But it took me a while to realize that I kept going through because on a task-based risk assessment, let me step back for a moment because people have to understand this to get these concepts into these early stages. If I'm out with somebody and I said, pretend I'm your kid and you teach me how to do this, uh, and there's a jam. So what's the first step? And they'll kind of start through and I will, wait a minute, how did I know the machine was jammed? And they're looking at me like, are you smoking something? Well, the machine stopped. There was an observation. That's a step. What do you do now? Well, we walk to the panel. That's another step. Uh, what do you do now? Well, I turn the machine off. Okay. I put it in manual mode. Okay. I hit the, in each one of those are a step. The reason for that is that methodology gets the worker into a cage. There's no discussion of hazard or risk or anything else. I'm capturing things that I know will show as no hazard. There's no exposure. And the reason, and here's where I want to get to my learning and where this can be so important in concept design. Of all these hundreds of overall risk assessments, I found that probably not 10% of the high-risk job elements related to the hazards of machine motion. Yet, the overwhelming number of high-risk job elements related to slips, trips, and falls. And people ask, why would that be? Well, sometimes, and a machine can be fully locked out. I'm going, well, how do you get in there? Well, and we don't actually do it, but we some, they have to climb up on things. And I said, well, what are you climbing on? Well, kind of holding on. And there's no place for fall harnesses or anything out. Nobody even knows the workers are doing this. So when we anticipate these kinds of tasks in concept and design and begin to design and maybe make steps that get somebody out up to a position because Past experience has shown in this operation, this jams, or I got to do a quality check. A guarantee in concept and design, it costs almost nothing. We have mitigated risk. And again, I just want to leave folks with the thought, we'll never get to those real world issues until we dispel ourselves and debunk the myths. And I personally believe that's the leadership role of safety professionals. Absolutely. That's, that's a great point. Uh, okay. Any, anything else you'd like to add about uh, prevention through design, how organizations can uh, implement these concepts as, as we wrap up? I, again, I would encourage work with engineers, introduce the methodologies existing in the ANSI standards, debunk the myths, help people get more comfortable with how you now come into compliance with the law, and we will have made tremendous strides. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and address those who might be interested. I will really appreciate you taking the time, Mike. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I, I hope our, our listeners will take what we've talked about today and think about how they can uh, implement it at their organizations to uh, make their workplaces uh, safer for their workers. So uh, thank you again. Well, thank you. And I would tell you that uh, if anybody calls and has a question, I provide a lot of free consultation on one of my favorite topics. Thanks again. I appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org and follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.